This podcast is a production of the Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, a place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, visit our website at www.communitycovenant.net. I remember last week as we began our survey of the book of Acts, uh, we read through Acts chapter 1 verses 1 through 8 and we got to to verse 8 where where Jesus tells his disciples that that they are going to go out into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the othermost ends of the earth and they're going to take the message of the kingdom with them and you might recall as we talked about that we talked about how we are a part of a grand narrative of God's work in the world about the redemption story and how when we think about the uttermost parts of the world that's Alaska and then in that narrative God has been at work here and uh, the covenant church has played a very very important role of that but but beyond just the covenant church as a denomination this church community covenant and and many of the members who helped founded this church were very involved in in the the work of mission here in the state of Alaska. And this morning, we are privileged uh, to have Dennis Wilder here uh, from the Covenant radio station in Nome, K-I-C-Y. It's easy to remember, K-I-C. Dennis, come on up. And uh, Dennis, we are so thrilled that you're here. And uh, our church uh, has had a, a part in the ministry there from its founding, its inception, even Till now, but could you give us a little background about the history and the story of the radio station and its mission here in Alaska and beyond? Well, it's interesting. We just celebrated our 50th anniversary up almost four years now, uh, four years ago in Nome, and the theme was 50 years of miracles. And if you look at KICY, that's what it is. It's one miracle layered on top of another miracle that allows us to today broadcast into Russia. Uh, it's just astonishing the gift that God has given this denomination and this church and our listeners in Western Alaska and the Russian Far East. It's, it's astonishing to just look at the whole story. If you want to know more about the miracles of the, the 54 years of KICY, talk to Ralph Fondell or Gert. I mean, they were there at the very, very beginning of KICY. They flipped the switch on the very first day with the words, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Those are the first words on the air on KICY on Easter Sunday, way back in 1960. And it's true today as it was then. That is amazing. And you may not be aware that the radio station is the only radio station in the United States that has an international license. And that is so imperative for the ministry, the radio ministry and broadcast uh, in into Russia. Um, Dennis, tell us a little bit about how we hear... That community covenant can be a part of that narrative, that grand narrative of God's work in Alaska through the radio station. Uh, how can uh, the men and women and the boys and girls, uh, the teenagers that are here today, how might they participate? Well, one of the folks who helped put the station on the air, Bill Hartman, back in 1960, he, he told me, some get to go by giving, so we appreciate your financial support, and some get to give by going. And I always love that phrase. And we often rely on summer work teams coming to Nome to help us out. We have a very short window of opportunity to get anything done outdoors in Nome. It's about 60 days in a good summer, a little less on some other summers. 
So we rely on work teams to do the things that allow us to continue for the next 10 months up in western Alaska. So we do rely on you folks to bring work teams. We also are staffed by volunteers. So we are always looking for folks who would like to come and talk on the radio, maybe for a year at a time. If you have a young person, a young person who doesn't know quite what they want to do when they leave high school, I would suggest you might encourage them to be engaged with KICY. And perhaps this this church could support them, sponsor them. Um, We do provide housing. And uh, in fact, three of the apartments are inside the radio station. So your commute to work is just downstairs. I love it. I love it. Dennis is going to be out at the Connection Center immediately following service. Please come and welcome him. And if you have questions, I know he'd be more than happy to answer them. And tonight at 6.30, uh, immediately following our evening service, uh, Dennis is going to be here, and he's going to be sharing more stories and particularly letting you know about the miracles that he's talking about. And, and I've heard about some of them, and they are truly astonishing. But the thing you need to understand that it's, it's not Dennis's story. It's not the story of the radio station. It's our story uh, here at Community Covenant. And so I would invite you to come and hear about your story, hear about the narrative that, that you are a part of, that our church is a part of, Tonight's going to be a special night, and we're looking forward to hearing from you, Dennis. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, the scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 26. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way when you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who has been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us. 
beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas let left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. Thank you, Marty. That was a lengthy portion of Scripture. Good, though. Lots in there. We're going to try to unpack some of that this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open them up or your electronic device to Acts chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 9 through 26. Acts 1 verses 9 through 26. The year 1977 was the best of times and the worst of times for me. Uh, A young man in junior college, uh, the very first day of the second semester, uh, I met and first laid eyes on this beautiful young woman who was someday going to be my wife. And I can remember listening to her. She sat in front of the class and She'd answer questions. She was so intelligent and insightful. And not only that, she was very attractive. And I thought, wow, uh, she is just a special young lady. And I can remember thinking after class, I'd like to talk with her and maybe get to know her a little bit. Uh, And then I did the unspeakable. I shaved my head. I was a football player. And in solidarity with uh, one of the other athletes on the team, uh, I shaved my head, and then several of the other guys shaved their heads. But needless to say, it didn't leave a very good impression on this young lady. <clears throat> uh, and so that was, that was tough. But then the worst part of that year for me uh, was as an athlete, as a football player, uh, it was the first time since sixth grade playing tackle football that I had never had the opportunity to be in the starting lineup. Uh, I was not a a starter on that team uh, that went on to be uh, among the great junior college football teams, uh, won the national championship that year, played in a game called the Junior Rose Bowl, beat a team from Jones County, Mississippi, 38-9 to to claim the national championship. And yet, the difficult part of that year for me, it was a year in which I didn't get to play. And I can't tell you how hard that was how difficult that was. And and uh, I was an offensive lineman, and uh, each of the positions had a coach. There was a you know defensive line coach, a linebacker coach, a receiver coach, so on and so forth. There was an offensive line coach. Now, all the other coaches, uh, when the score got out of hand and, and we were soundly defeating our opponents, would put in members of the second and third team. Everyone got to play, unless you were an offensive lineman. And uh, our line coach never played second or third team players. We could be ahead 55 to nothing. And you didn't get to get in the game unless you were a, a first teamer. And that was very, very, very difficult 
for me. And I remember as it came time to prepare for the national championship game, uh, we were having practice, and normally what would happen would be the, the first team would be uh, running through plays, and the second team would be back watching them, and then they would switch and let the second team run some plays in case uh, someone got injured and you would have the opportunity to play. And the coach on that particular afternoon turned back and looked at us who were the second-team offensive line, and said, you guys can go ahead and sit on the bench today. There's no need for you to be out here. You're not going to get to play. Can you imagine how deflating that was? We had worked hard during the summer, been to all the practices, been a part of of the story of the team, the narrative of the team as they march towards a national championship. By the way, on that particular team, there were a minimum of five players from that team that eventually went on to play some form of professional football. It was a great junior college football team. And looking back on it, I was just lucky to suit up. And yet I was so disappointed because I didn't have the opportunity and I knew no matter how hard I worked, no matter how many wind sprints I ran, no matter how many weights I lifted, no matter how well I performed in practice, I'd been told I wasn't going to have the opportunity to play. Deflating. Horrible. One of the worst experiences at that time of my young lifetime. And you know, as I think about that, I think about that experience, uh, I think about church. I think about how many of us might come here on a Sunday and we're listening to uh, a survey of the book of Acts in a new sermon series, The Spirit of Adventure, God on the Move, Then and Now. And we sit and we listen and we, we see the worship team playing and maybe we came in and the, the ushers were greeting and our children are off to children's ministry where they're being taught by Sunday school teachers and there's someone back in the sound booth and you're sitting here and you're looking around you and all around you are people who are in the game. People who get to play. People who are the first team. And you may be sitting there watching. And here's what I want to say to you. Unlike my experience in junior college that freshman year, where I was told by the coach that it really didn't make any difference what I did, I wasn't going to get to play. On the contrary... You and I, as followers of Jesus, each of us are members of the first team. All of us are in the game. As Jesus assembles His team of witnesses, those who will live missionally for Him in the world, He wants each of us to know that if you're on His team, you get to play. If you're on His team... You're going to participate. Uh, Chuck Colson once said, The church resembles a football field on Sunday morning. 22 men beating their heads out on the field with 60,000 people spectating. It ought not be that way. The message that we see today as we read through the Scripture is that Everyone on Jesus' team participates. All of us are on the first team. All of us 
are important. All of us are given gifts that God intends to use in His great and grand narrative. That redemption story in which you and I get to play an important role. Not only that, as Tyler alluded to earlier, you and I are on a winning team. Now, I suited up many, many times over many, many years as being a a football player. And although I was confident often going into a game, I never, ever knew for sure whether or not we were going to win. Community covenant. Members of Jesus' team. I've got great news for you and for us. You know what it is? We are guaranteed the victory. We're guaranteed the victory. We are on the winning team. And the good news is that each of us are starting players. As we read our passage today, it comes on the heels of Acts 1 through 8. You might recall uh, verse 8 where Jesus is reminding them that they're going to receive power to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the othermost ends of the earth. Now, Immediately following that, he in his ascension is going to be taken up into the heavens. And it's interesting as we read that portion of Scripture in Acts 9 through 11, uh, we see him being taken up into the clouds. And as you know through reading Scripture, clouds are a sign of divine glory. It's as if divinely in his glory, he is ascending to heaven for his coronation as king where he is going to sit at the right hand of God the Father, and he makes constant intercession for you and for me. And as that's going on, his disciples are just, they're amazed. They're watching. And the Scripture tells us that uh, there are two angels that come and say, hey, what are you looking at? Jesus, who is leaving now, is, is going to return in just the same way. And of course, what they're referring to is his triumphant return when he comes again. And you know, by the way, Jesus is coming again. Remember last week when I shared with you that as we think about end times, as we think about what we call eschatology, the theological name, and we think about the the story of Jesus, his, his first coming and his return, that we can say, Christ has died Christ is risen, and Christ is coming again. Can we say that together? Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ is coming again. It's good news. And so as they're staring up, they're reminded by these angels that that He's going to return in the same way that you're, you're seeing Him leave in the clouds. And uh, in case you're wanting to read more about that, the biblical references, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, Revelation 1.7, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. They relate to that and they give us a picture of, of our king when he comes again. And so, as they're looking intently, they're told, hey, what are you looking at? Uh, he's going to return the same way that he came but as if to say, in the meantime, what in the world are you waiting for? Get going. Uh, he's given you his marching orders. He already gave you instructions 
about what you're to do. And of course, those instructions that we read in 11 through 13, as as they now move in response to what Jesus had told them, we also read in Luke 24, 52 through 53. And it says there in Luke's gospel, which of course, those verses are continued on right here in the first chapter of the book of Acts. It says that they returned to Jerusalem, but first they worshipped as they saw his ascension. They worshipped, it moved them to worship. And oh, how the the knowledge of of Christ and, and his work on earth, his work in us, the knowledge that that same Christ, that as he has ascended, so he's going to return, that ought to be cause for us to worship. Worship's a powerful thing. Worship affirms us in our faith. Worship gives glory to God, and that's exactly what they're doing here. And so they worshiped, then they returned to Jerusalem. And in Luke's gospel, it says, with great joy, where they, what? Constantly were going to the temple, and they were praising God. Great joy, and constantly praising God. Why? Why do they have such great joy? Why were they constantly praising God? Well, you and I know, because we have that same joy, and that ought to motivate us to praise. That, that we have a place to belong. We are a part of the body of Christ that, that He instituted with a new covenant in which He, what, sacrificed His body and He shed His blood. And, and with that covenant comes an invitation to relationship, that we have relationship with the living God. You know, Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. Can we say that together? Jesus is alive. And He lives in us and He lives through us. And we're invited into that covenant relationship. We have a place to belong. We're a part of the family of God. But as we're invited into that covenant relationship, we're, we're, we have great joy and we're praising God. We have a place to belong. But we also have what? A purpose to believe in. The message of the gospel. The message of the gospel. And that we are starting players on Jesus' team that we're in the game, that we get to play, that we get to participate. That is cause for joy. That's a reason to praise God. We have a place to belong, and we have a purpose to believe in. The gospel, the message of the kingdom. And and with relationship comes responsibility. We're invited into that covenant relationship with Jesus, but we also have a responsibility as messengers of witness to the kingdom. And so the disciples, they go back to Jerusalem both with invitation and with challenge because God gives us both. They have a place to belong. They have a purpose to believe in. And are you ready? ready? This is for you too. There was a plan for their life to make a difference. And oh, that you and I know that God in His sovereignty has a plan for us since before the foundations of the world, that we might make a difference, that we, as as we go out into our Jerusalem, into our Judea, into our Samaria, into the uttermost parts of the world, that God's plan for us is that we make a difference. Whether it be going up with Dennis to K-I-C-Y this summer, or it be going to a schoolhouse to paint a wall in a service project, whether it be going to work 
in listening and ministering to a co-worker or going home and caring for a family member or a neighbor. God has a plan for us in the message of His kingdom. And so we see in verses 9 through 11 and verses 11 through 13 a plan. And that plan is for us to participate in the gospel, in the kingdom work of God. And then in verse 14, we, we see prayer. Uh, what did they do? They went back and they gathered together, the 120 of them, and they prayed together. Prayer is mentioned 31 times in Luke Acts. And it's present in 20 of the chapters of the book of Acts, prayer. Arthur Matthews said this, The spiritual history of a mission or a church is written in its prayer life. Did you hear that? The spiritual history of a mission or a church is written in its prayer life. Prayer is not the exclamation point on the sentence that describes our participation in the kingdom of God. Prayer is that sentence. Prayer is a part of every letter, of every word in that sentence. Prayer is essential to the mission and to the witness of God and His kingdom. And I am so grateful that we here at Community Covenant uh, are a praying church. And, and there are opportunities to, to prayer, whether it means intercessory prayer during the week, or praying for one of the ministries, or, or praying for missionaries, or healing prayer, which has been a part of this church. Prayer is at the core of this church. But where we're going, and what God has for us, the mission that He's sending us on together at Community Covenant, we need to pray even more. We need to be deliberate about prayer. We need to look for opportunities to pray. And when there are opportunities, come and participate. Because prayer is critical to the mission of the church. Uh, there's a man, you may have heard of him, his name's Jeremiah Lamphere. He was a 46-year-old businessman in New York City in 1957. And the Lord placed on his heart a burden for prayer. And, and so he, he sent word out to the other business people in the city of New York, and he said, uh, I want to pray one, one day a week at noon for an hour. Will you join me? And that first day he showed up. He was the only one there. He prayed for a half hour. Then six other businessmen joined him. The next week, 20 came. The week after that, 40 came. Before long... There was a hundred. And as the prayer movement moved throughout New York City, there were 10,000 people not praying once a week, but meeting every day at noon to pray. 10,000 businessmen and clergy praying in the city of New York in 1957. And what were they praying for? They were praying for revival. And out of that prayer meeting, more prayer meetings began to pop up and spread across the United States. And it led to what we know as the Great Awakening, 1957 through 1959, in which out of 30 million people in the United States at that time, 20 million came to faith in Jesus Christ. It started as God impressed upon one person the need to pray. Now, in our passage in verse 14, there are two words which are key to understanding how we're to pray. Number one is a word together. That word literally means in the original language of one mind or passion. 
together, one mind or passion. And then there's a word constantly, which means to be resolute, to be obstinate, to be persistent in prayer. That is what's called prevailing prayer. Prevailing prayer. Uh, Jesus uses a parable in Luke 18, 1 through 8. It's the, it's the parable of the persistent widow. To emphasize uh, the importance of, of prevailing prayer. Uh, prayer that is resolute. Prayer that is obstinate. Prayer that is persistent. This is the prayer of the disciples of the 120 as they were gathered together there in the upper room. And what does prevailing prayer do? It, attur- it attunes our heart to the will of God. And that was that 10-day period of time uh, in between Jesus' ascension and between the coming of the Holy Spirit, the birth of the church called Pentecost, in which they were gathered together, the 120, and they were there unified with one mind, one passion. They were praying constantly. They were resolute, obstinate, and they were persistent in what was happening during that time. God was attuning their hearts to His heart because prayer and prevailing prayer attunes our heart to God's will. It prepared their hearts to receive the mission that He had for them. And oh, that mission was far greater than they ever could have imagined. And the third thing that that prevailing prayer was, was it was a means of, of spiritual warfare. You see, they had every reason to be defeated. Because prior to that 40-day time of ministry in which Jesus taught them about the gospel, about the resurrection, and about the kingdom of God, they had been horribly defeated. And the enemy would want to take the defeat, their failures, the things they had done wrong, and remind them of that and cause them to stumble or cause them to resist the will of God as God was calling them out into the world. And so that prayer was a means of spiritual warfare. That prayer was a means of purifying their hearts and their minds, cleansing them from their past, from their failures, and reminding them of the victory that was ahead of them that's in Christ Jesus. That's what that prayer was doing. And so as they pray, they come to a place in verses 15 through 26 where Peter says we need to replace the one, the one disciple, Judas, who had betrayed Christ. But in that, we see an attitude of God's providence. He says that it has to be, it had to be according to what was written. And he quotes Psalm 109.8. And in that, what Peter is saying, what he's reminding the 120 of, is that God is seen as sovereign in life and history. No matter what happens, God's there. No matter what happens, God's in control. No matter what happens, God can take, He can redeem it, and He can use it for His sovereign purposes. And in this case, He's reminding them that even what Jesus, or excuse me, what Judas did to Jesus was in fulfillment of the Scripture. That God is in control. And they had this sense of providence. And that's so important. That's so important. That in their brokenness, There was purpose. That they had a mutual dependence on God and a love for each other that created unity that resulted in exactly what they were. 120 who were about to be touched by the Holy Spirit, a family on mission. A family on mission. And in the providence of God and in their brokenness, during that 10 days, God did a healing work through that prayer as God had built an anticipation that they would all participate in the message of the kingdom. 
healing from what they'd done or what they'd failed to do. Wholeness in who they were. Wholeness is found in Christ Jesus. That He makes us whole again. That He gives us purpose. That we know we're going to participate. We know that God never gives up on us. He heals us. He gives us wholeness. Healing from from what we've done or haven't done. Wholeness in, in who we are in Christ. We have a new identity. Isn't that good? That God gives us a new identity in Christ. And a completeness. And that's what was going to come on the day of Pentecost. A completeness in that God was going to provide for them all that they needed to accomplish His sovereign purpose and His will. The truth is that Jesus didn't pick the most qualified people. He picked teachable people. And that the story of Jesus teaching His disciples and the story that we see as His disciples move out in the books of Acts to do even greater things than Jesus had done is that there was a culture of development. That God took people with their strengths and their weaknesses. He healed them. He made them whole. And He completed them. And and in that, He used them to do amazing things. And so what's the difference this morning between you being a a spectator and a participant? Uh, You reading this Scripture through the lens of participation, the lens of prayer, and the lens of providence of God in your life. The difference might be you sitting here as a spectator saying, God could never use me. Maybe there are things in my life that aren't right, or maybe there are past failures. Maybe there are things I haven't done. I've got good news for you that you're on Jesus' first team, and you're there because He has a plan for you, and He can take your brokenness. He can take the things that you've done that you wish you hadn't done, and the things you hadn't done that you wish you did. He can take all those things, and in the power of His Holy Spirit, and His His cleansing and His healing, He can make you whole, and He can complete you, giving you the power you need to be on the first team. It's not about you. It's about Him. It's not about what you're going to do. It's about what He's going to do in you and through you. That's the good news. And that's the anticipation that they went back to Jerusalem and they waited those those ten days for. Good stuff. When I was uh, 19 years old, I remember a real key moment in my life, a moment that made me feel really good about myself. Uh, My mother, when I was 13, took me to the local gym. I grew up without a dad, um, and so the gym was a real positive place for me, and there were men there that took me under their wing, and they, they taught me how to lift weights and what to do to prepare my body to play football. And, and I went faithfully for years to that gym, and I knew the owner, and I knew the inner circle of men, but I was always on the outside. But more and more and more, they, they, they drew me in and they taught me and I became a part of that family at the gym. And I'll never forget the day the owner, Bob, called me into his office. He said, Todd, I want to see you in my office. And he leaned back in his chair and he opened up his desk and he reached in and he pulled out a key. And he said, here, I want you to have a key to the gym. What that meant is I had access to the gym anytime, day or night. What that meant is I could open up the gym for whoever I wanted to. What that meant is that he trusted me with the most important, valuable thing that he had as the owner of that gym. 
And there were only a handful of men that had a key to the gym. Do you know that the Lord, like He did to Peter, has given you and me keys to the kingdom? To the message of the gospel that unlocks people's hearts to the good news of Jesus Christ? And He has said to you and to me, here, here's the key. I entrusted to you the most important thing. The kingdom of God. You have the key to that you can unlock the heart and the lives of men and women and children and youth to the good news of the gospel. The good news is this. We're all participants. The good news of this is that God prepares us in prayer. The good news is this, that in His providence, He works in our life. And He positions us to hand us the keys because we're all on the first team. Amen.